Hello and welcome to the ProAdvice Business Podcast Series. Today we'll include the recording from the week two of the ProNet webinar series, which is uh, Charles Gabriel from Morgan's talking about an economic outlook. Uh, the world in the grip of a health pandemic and many of their economies struggling to the point of recession. What does this mean in the investment world? Um, I'll pass over now and we'll hear from the webinar held recently. Thank you. Hello and welcome to everybody online there to week two of the uh, ProAdvice ProNet webinar series. Uh, my name is Ben Leditschke and tonight I'm joining you from my home office in, which is south of Hobart in Tassie. So wherever you are, I hope you're well, wherever you're listening from and you've got a nice warm cuppa in your hand and you're settled in on the couch for another enlightening hour or so. Uh, also, I trust you enjoyed last year, last week's panel conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And if you wanted to revisit any of those things, the recording is available. A uh, quick bit of housekeeping as per the screen, um, just get your microphones muted, videos turned off. Um, ask a question, just click on the Q&A bottom, uh, button, which is at the uh, bottom of the screen. And we'll try to address those as they come in. And yes, as indicated before, the session's being recorded, so we should be able to um, go across the, um, the best bits of the session uh, at a later date. Uh, the subject for tonight, though, is going to change topic a bit from last week. Uh, and we're going to aim to provide a broad economic update, which is pretty interesting given the many influencing factors out there at the moment. Um, uh, hopefully provide some risk strategies for investing as well as some opportunities for investment, as well as potentially some things to avoid. So that's enough for me. Um, I'd like to now introduce the main presenter for the evening, who's Charles Gabriel from Morgan's Financial Limited. A background on Charles. Charles holds a uh, Bachelor of Business major in Finance from the University of Tassie. He's got a Graduate Diploma of Financial Planning. He's been with Morgan's Hobart for in the Hobart office for over five years and assists clients with financial planning strategies and ongoing wealth management. Uh, Charles is also a committee member and secretary of the board of Hemophiliate Foundation in Tassie. Uh, his main areas of expertise are in financial planning, investment advice, portfolio administration, retirement estate planning, superannuation advice, advice and self-managed super. With all that in front of us, I think Charles is very well qualified to, to deliver tonight's address. Good evening to you, Charles. Perfect. Thank you for having me, uh, Ben, and the, and the team at ProAdvice. It's a privilege to be here speaking to you tonight, and I'm, uh, I'm all for this sort of open discussion and having a chat about these sort of things. So it's, it's great to have a few people listening here this evening. Um, I'm just going to share my screen. So... Hopefully this works. All right, can you see my screen? That's all good for Aaron Charles. That's all good, excellent. Okay, so I've tried to split tonight's sort of uh, webinar into a few different sections, uh, a bit more of a broader economic update, uh, and then sort of our approach to investing and, and how that sort of changes o over time. Uh, and then following on from that, some more specific examples of, of sectors, but, but more importantly, companies that we think look attractive and then also what what we're avoiding at the moment. Um, but before I before I start off with that, just some uh, some legal sort of requirements. Um, what, I, what I talk about tonight is, is an advice. So if, if you do act on it or think you might act on it, just, just make sure it's appropriate for your own circumstances and then have a chat to a professional. So just, just a little bit of a, a brief introduction to, to Morgan's first. I'm sure I saw a few familiar names in the, in the chat room there. So I'm sure a few of you are already uh, familiar with, with Morgan. So we're, we're Australia's largest national full service stockbroking and wealth management firm uh, with over, over 60 offices throughout the country and in all states and territories. And, and we're not aligned with any, any bank or insurance company. Uh, as Ben said before, I'm, I'm from the, the Hobart office. I've been with there for been there for just over five years now. Uh, so it's a, it's a smaller office. There's six advisors and, and five support staff, and the advisors there come from a come from various backgrounds, in, including agriculture, accounting, uh, commerce, and, and also law. Ben's already touched on on what we provide uh, advice on, so I won't go into any more any more detail there. But there's just a, a bit of a brief list. If you if you do want to contact us after please feel free to, to get up, um, my contact details from, from Ben or, or Samara or Jane or, or any of the team at ProAdvice. So jumping into, jumping into it, uh, economic updates, there's, there's certainly a lot to talk about at the moment. So it wasn't hard to, to think of content for, for tonight's webinar. Uh, and everyone's going to have a lot of questions, I, I would presume, about COVID-19 and the impact on the economy and markets and things. So I guess to... to 
disclose first, uh, I'm a financial planner and investment manager. I'm certainly not an economist. Um, so I'm happy to have a happy to have a chat about um, my sort of general uh, feelings towards everything at the moment. But I'll, I'll leave the forecasting to, to the professionals. Uh, and the word's been thrown around a lot at the moment, but we, we really are in truly unprecedented times. Um, the, the response from from governments and, and central banks has been has been incredible. It's been very quick and it, and it's been it's been enormous. Uh, in terms of really where this leads, it's yeah, I'd love to be able to tell you. I'd love to be able to sit here confidently and say this is the path forward, but but I really can't do that. Um, there's there's just still too many unknowns. There's been talks of all sorts of different recoveries and and prolonged periods of, of, of deflation or inflation or disinflation. It's a there's a lot of unknowns and it all sort of comes back down to, to, to a vaccine, I think. Um, so if, if there is a vaccine available, well, Russia seemed to think that they've already done it. Um, but when, when will that uh, vaccine become available globally? And they, well, when I wrote this, I said, will there be second waves or more? But that's clearly happening at the moment. So how many more waves are we going to get? Which then, of course, um, means further lockdowns like we're seeing in Victoria at the moment. And I guess just a just a state there as well. I've been asked tonight to talk about sort of the economic impact and the impact on investors and, and how we can sort of react to this. Um, I don't want to discount the, the seriousness of what's going on or, or the loss of life. It's, uh, it's very, it's very um, uh, devastating, clearly. And then behind all that, you'd be aware we've got the ongoing tension between China and the US and, and also the, the presidential election later this year. So I just wanted to, uh, and of course, what does that mean for investment markets? So I just wanted to start off with, to help illustrate how uh, enormous the, the response has been from governments and, and central banks globally. I just wanted to start off with a, a chart of the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank in the US, that their, their balance sheet from a quantitative easing. So that's effectively when, when they need to provide liquidity to the system, uh, generally into credit markets, to, so debt markets, they... They do what's called quantitative, quantitative easing, which is effectively purchasing financial assets uh, such as bonds. So if we, if we look at the next slide here, and we can sort of compare it back to the, the global financial crisis, which is through this period here. So this is the total level of assets. Um, so, so that's, that's $4 trillion, um, $6 trillion. So we, we're talking very significant numbers here. So you can see before the GFC, the Fed balance sheet or the assets on the Fed balance sheet were, were under one trillion, and then over a period of time from the GFC to the beginning of calendar year 2020, that was about so eight years, give or take. There was growth from quantitative easing of, of three trillion dollars, so an enormous figure. And then you get to 2020, and COVID hits, and they've they've really thrown everything that they they can at it. Um, and, and it's grown from, from March 2020 to now, there's been a further $3 trillion added to the balance sheet. So they've effectively repurchased or, or purchased the same amount that they had purchased in the same in the previous eight years in, in a space of under six months. So it, it has been enormous. And, and I don't know about you, but it, it certainly feels like we're in essentially a bit of an experiment at the moment uh, to, to try and bridge that gap. So how long that bridge has to get I, I don't know. Uh, I, I really wish I did. Um, and then, and then it also in, in Australia, the response has been uh, enormous as well, and it's been it's been very quick. And that's why, really, why you saw uh, equity markets bounce off their their sort of March lows very very quickly. So I guess where to from here? As I said before, I, I'd love to be able to tell you that. Um, there's there's a lot of unknown, but the a lot of unknowns. But the central banks around the world have, have been very very clear that they're willing to use all, all their tools and, and pull the necessary levers to to support the economies through through the period of well they've essentially said indefinitely until until there's a, a recovery. So if if there is another sort of considerable downturn, I mean we would think that central banks would act fairly quickly. And, and I think the market is sort of anticipating that as well. And that, that is a bit of a concern to us as well, but I'll have a chat a bit more about that uh, later on. Uh, there are, I guess, some sort of positive signs or, or green shoots, if you like. As I said before, I'm certainly not an economist, um, but I've got, a, I've got a chart here that was sent around by our chief economist, uh, Michael Knox, and it's charting the 
uh, US advanced retail and food sales. So he, he's done a, a little bit of work into this and, and, and says generally that this lags the employment figures by about three to five months. So we can see here that there was an extraordinary drop uh, and, and it's bounced back to essentially where it was pre-COVID, pre if you like, whereas during the GFC, there was much much longer sort of fall and, and it took a, took a long time for it to recover back to its pre-panic uh, pre levels, if you like. So Michael's effectively said that he, he believes that this, this could mean uh, a steady burst in, in US employment growth um, but by the end of the year, which will then flow through to a, to a recovery in the US economy. Um, but but that, who, know, who really knows, uh, I guess, but it, it is a positive sign. Um, and just, just on that quickly as well, Goldman Sachs came out yesterday uh, and effectively said that they, they believe that there will be a vaccine available this year uh, and then it'll be distributed widely in first half of next year. So there's some good signs, but as investors, we can't control any of that. So we've just got to focus on what we can, can control, which at the end of the day is the investments that we make. Uh, just on, on, another sort of, on another sort of broader economic variable is, is the interest rate environment that, that we're in at the moment. Clearly, they're, they're extraordinarily low and, and that is a tailwind for growth assets such as shares. So I think that that should provide some level of fundamental support for, for markets. They're not going to stay low forever, but it's very unlikely that they, they're going to be raised for, for some time, I, I would think. So some just some recent recent quotes from the RBA Governor Philip Lowe, who, who said in May that they're not going to be raising them for, for a number of years. And, and, and then Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman in, in the US, so we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. So there's a graph here of the of the 30-year Treasury bonds in, in the US and, and the underlying yield there. So uh, just uh, on, on that last dot point there, so Warren Buffett last year, I mean, clearly this is before coronavirus, said that stocks are, are ridiculously cheap if you believe that 3% on 30-year uh, Treasury bonds makes sense and, and that that 3% is now 1.3%. So it's it's more than halved. Uh, so that, that should provide some sort of some sort of support to to growth assets. Um, and just to, just to clarify on that as well, since, since Buffett said that, the S&P 500 in the US, so the US equity market is up about 20, uh, 20%. So that's up 20% uh, 30-year Treasury yields. So or the rate on those is down over 55%. So uh, that's really all, all I've got to summarise in terms of the sort of economic situation before I go into sort of risk strategies for investors. But I know that there's probably going to be some questions, so I'll, I'll certainly do my best to answer. Um, ben, are there any questions initially on sort of more of the economic situation? None that have come through of, of yet, Charles, but uh, yeah. if all those listeners out there, feel free to throw in a question and we'll just deal with them intermittently through the presentation. Absolutely, not, not a problem at all. So I'll, uh, I'll keep going on then with, uh, with the slideshow. Sorry, just having a bit of an issue with my screen here, but that's all good. So I guess we're, what are we thinking for, for our clients in terms of risk strategies at, at the moment? It, it really is an opportune time to assess your invested position and, and what sort of companies you're invested in. Uh, it's unprecedented at the moment. So depending on how long this lasts, there's, there's going to be a lot of companies that suffer. Um, and I think it, it's, it's, it would be very wise to, to make sure you're getting good advice and, uh, and, and reassess the, the companies that you are invested in. Um, and equally as important from more of a financial planning perspective is focus on, on, on your asset allocation and, and ensure that that's, that's appropriate to you. So that, that just means you split between sort of defensive assets like cash and turn deposits and, and growth assets such as shares and, and property. Volatility is going to, to persist. So you, ne you need to be comfortable with the, with the portfolio and, and holding that for, for a long term. So that, that mix between the, those asset classes is, is very important. Uh, you're very lucky you've got great accountants. So have a chat to them, make sure that, that you've got appropriate structures in place that are, that are best for you. That, that can add enormous benefit, enormous benefits over, over the years, just making sure you, you tweak your structures and things and, and they'll be able to, they'll be able to chat to you. I'm sure, I'm sure they're already in place. And then just, just pre be prepared to invest for the long haul. So I guess it, it'd be good to chat about how we focus on investments. Um, 
and how we manage our clients' portfolios. So we're not active at all. We do continuously monitor, uh, but but we don't trade. We we certainly buy and hold good businesses. We find that good companies generally make good investments over the long term, and, and we've got some criteria that I will run over with you. So the, the stock market is essentially a platform to, to become fractional ownership to become fractional owners in a, in a company. So that's how we view it. We, we don't view it as buying a ticker on the screen. We, we, we are becoming fractional owners in, in a company when we, when we acquire stock. Um, and, and we focus on, on the company fundamentals. So I will elaborate that in, in a little bit. Uh, I have a question here from one of our listeners. If I can of course. Yeah. Yes. Um, so some fund managers are saying the crash is trash in periods of quantitative easing in this light. How do investors find comfort being between being all in and risk at all about nothing in yield? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I, I guess I, I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit later. But to, just to sort of summarise my answer there, we don't invest for for dividend yield. So when we assess a company, we don't really look at the dividend yield or franking credits or, or sort of share price trends. We're assessing the underlying fundamentals. And that's that's sort of, again, where your, where your structures and talking to your accountant comes into place as well. So because we view it as, as buying, a, a, because we view buying a company um, as becoming a fractional owner in the company, we're, we're really assessing the fundamentals. So then paying, Paying cash flow from the portfolio, which I think is your question, that comes down to sort of managing the cash flow over time rather than paying it from, from yield from the portfolio. So if I, if I go back, try and go back to the previous slide. So when I was talking about the asset allocation and making sure you've got appropriate amount in cash and turn deposits. So clearly interest rates on those are low. So that's going to lower the, over, lower the overall yield from the portfolio. But, but cash and turn deposits really are an insurance against volatility, if you like. So while interest rates are low, it is, it is crucial that you have a reasonable portion allocated to those assets, depending on your sort of risk tolerance. And then from, from generating a cash flow from the portfolio, how we approach that is, is we, we, we manage the overall return from the portfolio. So, so that might mean reviews every couple of years. And, and yes, that may mean trimming gains on some holdings, to, to move that, to sweep that over to cash and turn deposits, to know that you've always got two, three, four years worth of cash flow uh, payments, if you like. So, so that could be pension payments within a super fund, for example. So that, that, that's a little bit of a different approach um, that, than you might be used to because you, you're not sort of funding your, you're not funding your um, cash flow from your portfolio from the yield. So you're able to you're able to sort of focus on, on the highest quality companies. And that, that's the key benefit from that strategy is if, if you invest for, for yields, for yield, if, if, if you're just focusing on that, your investment universe is, is very, very limited. Uh, whereas if you focus on the company fundament, fundamentals, your, your, your investment universe is, is very, very broad. And then it's just a change in perception on how you, how you manage the cash flow from the portfolio. Thanks, Charles. I have another couple of questions here that I'll fire away at you. Of course. Um, so US investment of $8 here very quickly. What are the scenarios that EVC stable in the economy? Example, global rates rise, unlikely, or un unemployment spirals down and no money to stimulate? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I guess that comes down to the... the the government response and, and how sustainable that is. And, and, and I, I don't know, but it's unlikely that governments are going to let the economy walk off a, a fiscal cliff, if you like. So it's really about bridging that gap. Uh, if you look in Australia, for example, just on, on unemployment, unemployment numbers really quickly, I mean, the, the RBA are expecting sort of unemployment to, to reach about 10% at the end of this year and then bounce quickly from, from there. Um, so, so improve, I should say, quickly from there. Um, probably one of the best things that the Australian government has done is the JobKeeper program because that's sort of reducing the, the unemployment rate by about 5.5% um, and, and it's retaining workers on the books that they can just quickly go back to work, hopefully, when everything works out. But, but again, we can't control that. And, and I don't know um, if it is sustainable 
we need to focus on what we can control, which is the, the companies and the investments that we make. Sorry, Samara, was there any, was there a part of the question that I missed? Um, I think that's everything, but I have one more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there might be a few uh, young or new investors um, keen to, to get into the market and viewing that at the moment. So if an investor, say, had around $10,000, do you have a comment on where they could get a start? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd suggest just jumping onto the uh, ASX website. So I think it's just asx.com.au and jumping into the investor education part of the website. Have a read uh, of, of what they say. They've got scenarios very similar to, to what you're talking about there. Um, and there's, there's plenty of different uh, different ways you can go with that exchange traded funds or listed investment companies. So have, have a read of the website there and, and, uh, and view do that as you will and, and and sort of start you might you might take a more gradual approach if you're, you're a bit nervous about putting it all in the in the market perfect thanks charles i'll let you continue with your slideshow all right no problems at all so as i was saying on the on the risk strategies as i said we're very much focused on the long term the short term volatility and, and economic numbers you clearly we're what monitoring them, but we're very much micro-focused. So that means we're bottom-up stock pickers and we're assessing companies rather than markets or economies because that's really what we can control. When we buy a company, we're aiming to hold it indefinitely, ideally, but things can change so we can sell. And at the bottom there, we always focus on quality companies and how we perceive quality um, will be elaborated on in, in a little bit when I, when I discuss our investment criteria. So th this, is, this slide discusses uh, our investment criteria um, and I guess how, how we came to these eight points, if we like, and this is really what we apply to an individual company before we, before we buy it. Um, so as I said before, we, we're long-term investors and, and we did um, quite a significant lit review on, on previous or successful investors over history. So the likes of Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett. Uh, and and we, we, we sort of gathered all that information together to come out with a list of sort of key attributes that, that we should look for in companies. And, and we found that they were, they were very conservative in, in nature. Uh, and and I'll, just, I'll just expand on, on each of the sort of eight criteria that, that we do apply to individual businesses. So. So you're looking for a sound business model that's uh, transparent and easy to understand. So that sort of speaks for itself, really. And they, they are all quite simple, but it's, it's the application of them on a consistent basis, which is harder. Uh, it's trying to take the emotion out of investing. And investing can be very, very emotive. So it's, it's good to have these to sort of stick by. So we're also looking for, for companies that have the potential to grow profitability and, and be able to do that on, on a consistent basis. Um, that doesn't mean year in, year out, it has to be growing its earnings. Um, quality business doesn't necessarily have to do that. They can be tough years, but over the long period, we, we would like to see the earnings increasing. Uh, we're looking for, for a wide economic moat, as Buffett uh, coined that term. So it's basically just a competitive advantage. <coughs> uh, we have a look at management as well, and, and we want to make sure that the businesses are managed by uh, competent and prudent people. This is a, it's a key one at the moment as well, I think, so low debt levels. So we're really looking for companies that have very healthy balance sheets. So that, that's a key, key criteria for a quality company and it's very important at the moment, I would say. Uh, conservative accounting practices, a high return on equity, and then at the end, a reasonable valuation. And, and just to sort of elaborate on those a little bit further. I, I personally also prefer uh, quality over, over value. So I, I've seen and, and I've made more mistakes where I've thought that there's a gap between price and, and perceived value compared to just buying a, a good business that, that meet those criteria and, and holding on for the long term. It's always going to be volatile, but I, I find that approach works a lot better. Um, and on that sort of quality companies generally do demand high valuations. So just like anything quality that, you, that you'd buy, be that a car or clothes, it, it's going to demand a, a higher valuation or a higher price. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, I, that we're willing to pay uh, anything or any, any price for a company. Um, we are sort of cautious on companies that have valuations are sky high, um, but it just means that we're comfortable paying a little bit more and letting the company sort of grow into its into its valuation. 
So we do have some cell criteria or some red flags. Um, so if any of those begin to deteriorate, we can we can sell. The, the turnover port within our portfolios is is very low, um, but we we do have some sell criteria. So to to uh, give an example on that, um, uh, when sort of COVID kicked off, uh, which was February, uh, we, we had a sort of a broader review of all our client portfolios, and we did reduce exposure to some areas such as uh, U.S. banking, for example, because we thought the sort of fundamentals behind that were, were beginning to deteriorate. Uh, again, if, if a profit downgrade is announced, that's a, that's a trigger for us to review. We find that more often than not one profit downgrade is followed by another one. Uh, and then just very simply, if the share price enters a longer term downtrend, again, the we'll, market usually knows something's wrong. So that can be a, a, a criteria to sell. I can see a few pop-ups. I have, yep. yes, I was about to say, I have a couple of questions here. Thanks, Samara. Um, do you have any insight as to whether some of the changes, attitudes brought about by the recent bushfires and COVID-19 pandemic will become more permanent? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I'll try and answer that, but maybe it's not the answer that you're looking for. I think, I think that the current situation is, is going to result in some fundamental changes to, to consumer behaviour. Um, so I think that means adapting our approach to, to sort of align with that change in consumer behaviour. Um, does that, can you just repeat the question? Sorry, Samara. Yeah, no worries. If you have any insight as to whether some of the changes or attitudes, attitudes brought about by the recent bushfires and COVID-19 pandemic will become more permanent. Yeah, I, I, it's, I, I, I I'm finding that one a little bit difficult to answer just in the context of investments. But yeah, as I said, uh, it, it will result in um, fundamental changes to consumer behaviour. So that's certainly something that we're thinking about. So there's an example here that um, the listener has put. So for yep. example, the government becoming more accepting of climate change and introduce policies to scale back coal-fired power stations ah. and actively encourage industries producing and using energy from renewable source solar wind and ocean thank you for elaborating on that a little bit further that makes it uh, makes more sense now and i understand what you what you're getting at i do hope so uh i i don't know as i said i'm not an economist but but i i can see that from from an investment perspective there is a lot more demand for those sort of sustainable investments so i think globally or i think globally there is a push towards those sort of areas um whether that flows through with with the government making permanent changes i don't know i, I wish i did i do hope so um the, the cost of those sort of renewables and things coming down is is certainly good and as technology increases i mean technology is exponential so as, as the technology going into those will, will continue and that means that the prices should, should come down um, but, but whether or not I believe that there will be permanent changes, I, I do hope so, but I'm just not sure. Thank you. Um, what about the, the, what dollar amount of US quantitative easing debt possible before the US economy would risk not remaining the leading economic currency or country? Sure, so the dollar figure, that's a, that is certainly a, a tricky question and very, very precise. I, I don't know off the top of my head what, what the dollar figure would be before uh, you, before the US became uh, not the global powerhouse. I'd love to know. Okay. Just a, qu a question, I suppose, that relates to that, Charles, just quickly yeah. would be with the input of capital into the system by federal banks, mm -hmm. is there going to be a deflation risk or an inflation risk? Yeah. And what would be the consequence of either? Yeah, of course. So, so I guess whether inflation or deflation persists coming out of the other side of COVID-19, uh, again, it's a question I leave to the economists. But personally, I think that the sort of shorter term sort of, I guess, disinflationary environment and disinflation is a is falling inflation rather than deflation is 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 more likely unless this this lasts for much longer than than what what we're expecting at the moment. Um, from an investment perspective, though, if there was a prolonged period of deflation, that that, that wouldn't be good um, at, at, at a broad level, I guess. So 
in a, in a deflation, just to sort of elaborate that a little bit, little bit further. So in a deflationary environment, real interest rates uh, increase. So that, that has a negative impact on, on, on company valuations. Uh, and, it, and it's particularly bad. And that's what I was saying before about why, why the criteria of, of low debt levels is important because particularly bad for companies that are highly leveraged because real rates are increasing. So the, the debt becomes even more of a, a burden in, in, in a deflationary period. Um, because the, the essentially, essentially the real interest rates or the, the rates that they're paying uh, are higher, uh, and then if they if they have to renew that debt, it's going to be at higher rates. And then on a on a sort of more broad macro scale, if you like, um, deflation in in its at its very core, it, it decreases the cost of goods. So consumers tend to put off. Uh, making purchases just because they think that there's going to be a cheaper alternative down down the line, um, which obviously has a flow-on impact to, to everything. So, deflation it, it, it's more of a it's more of a policy. It's it's not a result. So, I, I I couldn't tell you what 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 if it was going to happen. But again, that really just brings me back to to the investment criteria and making sure you're invested in quality companies. So, in a deflationary environment, I mean it, the key thing for a company would be it, it's going to want to be able to grow above above sort of market if you like and and to be able to do that you, you need to sort of be either cutting costs which isn't ideal or or growing exponentially and, and sort of coming up with with new new products that are that are, that are top of the game uh, and that's you'll see I've got the top companies that we hold and a lot of them are sort of technology-based companies so I, I think that maybe the technology companies could become even more attractive in that sort of environment. Um, just one last question for you at the moment, Charles. Um, yep. an easy one. Is the oil industry debt? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's struggling. Uh, the industry as a whole, I don't think is, is dead. Uh, I think that a lot of oil, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of sort of highly leveraged oil companies go bust. Uh, that's a few big ones in the U S that have, that have um, filed for, for, for bankruptcy, so I don't necessarily believe that the oil industry is is dead. I think it's always going to be sort of a, a core part of the the economy. Again, we'd be focusing on more of a, a company specific um, at a company specific level. We, we tend not to have very much commodity exposure anyway, just because it's so volatile and the the company's share prices are very much highly correlated to the the, the underlying commodity price um I, I don't believe it's dead no but i think that you'd be wanting to be fairly cautious what oil investments that you had or oil exposed investments okay thank you no problems at all uh i'll keep going so just put some sort of basic information on on why why we encourage investing for the long term um and a couple of points here so I guess in panic situations and in mark in extreme volatility, and we saw some extreme volatility through February and March. We had sort of intraday swings on the ASX of almost 15% one day, which is which is incredible. So a natural, as human beings, a natural response to that is fear, and that's that's fair enough. So it's trying to trying to push down the uh, the want or the temptation to. To sell when when things are bad and sit and revert and cash it, it's very easy to, to have that approach. To oh, I'll, I'll sit on the sidelines and and wait and see. Um, and and I'm sure there's there's some some uh, some investment managers that might might say that they, they they bought and sold and they they, they did this. And they they bought at the beginning of a panic and well, sorry sold at the beginning of a panic and bought back in when the, the trend was moving upwards. But we're fairly cautious of, of those sort of statements. Um, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm sure. Sure, some people can can do it, and some investment managers can do it, but it's it's very difficult to do that on a consistent basis. So, I've just included a, a nice little graph on the next slide here that sort of illustrates or or provides sort of evidence to back up what I'm saying there about the benefits of holding for for a very long time rather than rather than sort of trading or or resisting that temptation to to trade. And the chart on the following page slide it it demonstrates. Um, a ten thousand dollar investment in the the US S and P five hundred from nineteen eighty to twenty eighteen, so almost a thirty year period. Uh, and if you just invested the, the ten thousand and left it, uh, and you invested all day, so this is till twenty eighteen, so it doesn't include COVID nineteen, unfortunately, uh, 
unfortunately. I did try to find updated figures, but they weren't available. So if you if you just bought and held that the result is sort of 660 grand or, or thereabouts, and if you miss just the five best days, yeah, your return drops significantly to about 430. And then again, missing the best 10 days, your return more than halves. Missing the best 30 days, your return's quite low at 125. And then missing the best 50 days, it's, it's very low at under 60,000. And that's all in US dollars. Uh, so you, you can see there that, that trying to sort of trade, if you do, if you do sort of trade in and out, even in, in panic situations, it, it can be detrimental to, to your long-term returns. So we, we're very cautious of, uh, of clients that want to, want to do that. It, it, clearly it's not comfortable, but uh, it, it's important. So and just to elaborate that a little bit further, so the 10 best days during that almost 30 year period were, six of them were during the most volatile times. So that was uh, the tech boom uh, the, and then the GSC. Charles, um, one of our listeners just wanting to know if that includes putting dividends back in to get the results. The total return? Uh, no, it's, it's, I'm just trying to remember from the Fidelity website. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the total return. It was just the price return. But good question. Are there any more questions at this stage? No? Excellent. I'll, um, I'll move on to sort of the next segment, but feel free if you do think of any questions, jump back up to the, the previous area. That's, that's fine. Um, so I'd just like to revisit the, the 2018 ProNet seminar. So a couple of my colleagues spoke there. Um, I'm sure a lot of you listening this evening were, were at that seminar. Um, John Pitt and Philip Hutton spoke there. Um, I'm sure those names are familiar to, to a few of you. So they, they flagged a number of sectors at, at the time to consider reducing exposure to, and, and those sectors were, were Australian banks and listed property trusts. Um, and I just wanted to expand on that, on the, on the capital return since, since that date. Now, clearly there's been a uh, global pandemic in that time. So the, the results have, have been fairly negative, but so the ASX listed property index is down about 15%. Commonwealth Bank is, is essentially flat. Now this doesn't include dividends uh, and the rest of the banks are, are down 50%. So we, we've been net sellers of banks for, for since I started. Um, so five years, we've been net sellers of banks based on the risk of there being some form of economic crisis and, and their exposure to the Australian economy. So. We, we do have clients that hold them and we've bought a few of them more recently uh, in the last few months, but we had been net sellers and, and, and you can see there that the, the, the performance has been quite low, uh, even until so pre-COVID, uh, the, the ASX listed property index, so to January, that was up about 20%, so that, that had done quite well. Uh, and the, the average return for the big four banks was was about 2.7%. So it's not great performance over, over a two-year period. Guys, I just have a question that we yep. went over before about um, having any insight into changes brought on by the bushfires um, mm -hmm. and COVID. There was yep. just one other example or question that they sort of had in, in line with that. Sure. Uh, working from home, and online shopping becoming more acceptable? Will the demand for office and retail space drop significantly? And what impact that might have on commercial property sector in construction industry? Yeah, sure, that, that, that's a great question. That's something that we've been just been talking about at the office for the last few days and, oh well, since COVID kicked off really, but we've been discussing it in more length the last few days. and. Uh, I'm not sure what, what the, the, this person's exposure is to, but you can look to the listed markets uh, to get a bit of a gauge, if you like. So the listed rates are down heavily, and particularly those those office rates uh, and retail rates. So they're trading it. So one, one that but, oh, is still in our, uh, my top holdings for clients is, is Dexas Office, um, and I think that's, that's very high quality. Um, and I'm happy holding it and even adding to it at these levels. That's trading at about a 25% discount to the, the net tangible assets, which is effectively the accounting asset of the accounting asset, the accounting value of its assets uh, on a per share basis. Uh, if, if you're interested in that sort of level, have a look at the sort of announcements recently on, on those listed companies. So Dexas, for example, had all of its properties revalued or, or 117 of, a, of 120 something. Um, so the majority of its assets revalued at 30 June and there was a minimal impact. And then a few of the others that, that I don't know, but I, that I don't own for clients, but I look at 
so Centuria Office rate and another one called GPT. So far, the, the rent that they've taken, so this is offices, has, has been high. So it's been above 90%. Longer term, I'd be fairly cautious on what I own. I'd be owning the very highest quality sort of inner CBD office buildings if, if I was to own in that space. Um, and obviously, I'd be looking very carefully at the balance sheet. If we were looking at a listed, listed investment, I'd be... I'd be staying clear sort of of, of smaller, uh, I guess, fringe location, located um, office REITs. And then on, on the retail side, that's a, that's a very in- interesting question. I've got some statistics about e-commerce in, in another slide, but I think there is there already was a fundamental switch from consumers or ongoing, on, ongoing switch for consumers towards e-commerce away from retail. I think to some extent it, there will still be demand for big shopping centres and things because it really is sort of, they can turn it into sort of an entertainment hub and, and precinct. So the bigger ones, there probably will be. Uh, personally, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable investing in retail at the moment for, for my clients. So that, I mean, shopping centres, just too many unknowns for me. Maybe one day, but but not at the moment. That's right. That's right. Uh, so just back on the pronoun seminar, I'm, I'm cautious on time here. I, I'll try and uh, shoot through the, through the rest of it. Um, so they, they suggested on focusing on, on companies with growth metrics, low debt and, and high cash buffers. They mentioned three companies uh, at that 2018 seminar and they were Apple, Alphabet and MasterCard. Um, the, the return on those three since that time, they've been very good performers and they've Apple and, and Alphabet and MasterCard. So you can see 76% for Apple, Alphabet about 20% and MasterCard touch under 50%. So, and as that person was asking before about uh, dividends, none of these pay particularly high dividends, but I'd rather hold something that's going to double or triple in value over a period of years and, and pay out sort of a, a 4% dividend and possibly half in value. Um, I, I guess what, what sectors and, and companies that, that we find attractive at the moment, um, really, the, the current environment, I mean, we, we, we try not to focus too much on short-term uh, stats, but it, it is interesting to see that there are a lot of companies that are, that are benefiting from the, the current, current environment. And as I said before, there's sort of a, there sort of already was a, a structural shift towards these sectors, but it's, it's been, it's really brought forward growth in, in a number of sectors. So three three sort of sectors that do that i think do look attractive again we, we're very much company focused so we, we can find companies in any sectors that look attractive but we tend not to follow themes but they, these sort of i guess themes do look quite attractive and if companies if we can find good value companies that meet our criteria in these sectors that, that's that's a benefit so just a few um recent stats and quotes from some some of the some of the sort of uh, companies that are benefiting through this period. So Sachin Adela from Microsoft, who's the CEO there, stated in, in April that they've seen two years worth of digital transformation in, in two months. Amazon, which has been incredible through this period, so their quarterly result to, to 30 June saw revenue growing 41%. Their, their web services or AWS, which is a cloud computing business, that that grew by 29% and that's actually down a little bit, but it's just getting bigger and bigger. So maintaining those sort of same levels of growth is harder for it. Um, online groceries, so they own Whole Foods over in the US. They tripled in, in, the, in the period uh, and then they, they added 175,000 staff, which is about a one third increase. Um, and Jeff Bezos Street came out just, I think it was last week or the week before and, and said that they intend on keeping 125,000 of those new staff members uh, permanent. So that, that tells me that, that they think a, a reasonable amount of that demand is, is gonna be sustainable. Uh, and then Jack Forrestal, the chief product officer at, at Visa, it stated in March, 2020. So during the, the month of March, 2020, they had 13 million Visa card holders in Latin America make e-commerce transactions for the first time ever. So you, you can really see it's, it's pushed forward growth in a lot of areas or, or pulled forward, if you like. Uh, and, and just sort of expanding on, on that, if I just go back quickly, if I can. Just expanding on, on Amazon. Oh, so we own a Microsoft and Amazon across most clients. Um, a few a few clients own, own Visa as well. So if, if you look at uh, Amazon, for example, so their, their web services, so which is, sits under cloud computing, 
their the Morningstar Research House, which is a, a research house that we we use a fair bit, or an external research house. So they're estimating $47 billion worth of revenue um, just from Amazon Web Services in, in 2020. So that's in Australian dollars, that's about 60, 66 billion. And, and for some perspective there, they're, they're anticipating Commonwealth Bank's revenue to be 25 billion. So Amazon Web Services only makes up about 15% of, of Amazon's business. So it's a fantastic business, it's not cheap, um, but, but it is a fantastic business. And uh, Morningstar are also anticipating that Amazon can grow uh, their web services at 25% of the revenue over the next five years, so 25% growth per annum. So just expanding on, on that a little bit further, so those sectors, I'll quickly run through this because uh, we don't have a heap of time left. Um, you can see there that why we like that, that sort of sector. So this is the global IT market spend uh, annually. And again, that's it's trillion, so two trillion. Um, Global cloud computing market, it only makes up a very small piece of the pie and the overall pie is growing as well. So the share of the pie and the overall pie are growing, that, that, that's good. Um, Gartner um, came out this year and, and said that they anticipate that the, the cloud service market will grow from about $240 billion in 2019 to $364 billion by 2022. Um, just some stats there from a, from a recent Deloitte survey as well, or report, so 42% of Australian businesses use paid cloud services, uh, up from 31% in 2015-16 in year. Um, just quickly on e-commerce, which sort of goes on from the, the client's question a little bit earlier. Uh, so clearly it's been a, a massive uh, period for e-commerce. I've, I've certainly done a, a fair bit of online purchasing and, and I, I know my partner certainly has as well. Um, so you can see here, this is from Shopify. This is what they had estimated pre-COVID. These estimates came out for e-commerce's share of total global retail sales from 2015 to 2023. Um, so COVID really COVID nineteen has really brought forward that growth. So you can see that in in, uh, in April May Mastercard's e-commerce sales hit that twenty two percent figure. So whether that's sustainable or not, I mean probably not all of it, but it sort of just brings forward this number to here. So it might go down a little bit and then and then keep on going up. So we don't think that there's going to be a sort of reversion back to back to traditional forms of of, of uh, retail we think it's uh, it's here to stay uh, and just interesting as well um australia post noted uh i think it's two hundred thousand new households shopped online for for the first time in in april 2020 uh and easter was the the busiest period for for online shopping in in, Aust in australia post's history so a, another uh, sector that, that looks quite attractive to us is, is digital payments and that's very much or we think it's been very much brought forward uh, from COVID because there's just a reluctance really to handle physical money. So cash and checks now, they, they, they can sort of help spread viruses. So there's been a, there's been a pull forward again of, of growth here, but that's not really, uh, if you look at the trend lines, it's not, it's not really a surprise. Checks and cash have been trending down now for, for years and, and the use of debit cards and credit cards and electronic transfers has been uh, has been increasing. Um, we don't think that that sort of long term transition is going to change. We think it's it's going to continue for for some time yet, and that's very beneficial to to companies like Mastercard and Visa. Uh, so we think they've got very long runways of growth. Again, they're they're not cheap. Um, I mean, Mastercard's up about fifteen percent since I wrote this slide uh, or, or prepared these slides. Um, <clears throat> Uh, they're, they're really dominant businesses um, with, with huge competitive advantages and, and massive network effects. So I, I, I'd say that almost everyone listening has a, a Visa or MasterCard card in, in their wallet or purse at the moment. Uh, and then, and then what, what really, so we, we do own a fair bit of MasterCard. What really sort of entrenched our, our thesis on, on MasterCard is a lot of possible competitors, if you like, they're, they're really expanding on the existing infrastructure that MasterCard and Visa have already built. Uh, and, and that that was uh, really uh, entrenched, if you like, by Apple uh, coming out with their Apple card a couple of years, and it was probably a year ago now or a bit over that. Um, so they're using MasterCard and Ma Apple are very 
big business with it, with a lot of power and a lot of money to spend. So if anyone was going to come in and do and try and compete with that MasterCard and Visa directly, we would have thought it'd been them. And then you look at other companies like PayPal and Square, even the, the sort of buy now and pay later space in Australia, that they all sort of operate on top of Visa and MasterCard's existing infrastructure. So we, we, it's a very simple business model. They just take a, a small clip of the ticket. It's like a toll booth, if you like. Um, it's up to about 0.2% of transactions. Um, obviously, the credit card fees are higher, but it's really the banks that take on the, the risk there. So it's the bank fees that are, that are higher because they're, they're taking on the credit risk. Um, Visa and MasterCard don't take any of the credit risk on. Uh, and then that's flowed through to, to, to solid growth. So revenue... Revenue's been up so 205% since 2010, and it's got high operating margins of about 57%, um, a high return on equity and, and a strong balance sheet. Um, and you yeah, just down there, the pandemic has really brought forward that growth. Um, it, it has struggled, I guess, shorter term, but again, we don't look at the shorter term because cross-border transactions uh, and cross-currency transactions are higher margins. So there has been some softening in the shorter term, but longer term we think that this just puts it in puts those sort of companies in an even better position so you can see their 10-year revenue growth of, of 10 percent and uh 20 year earning a 10-year sorry average earnings per share of of 20 percent so huge competitive advantage and, and network effect i've sort of run through those already clearly there's there's risks so they are they are big operators so there's regulatory risk um Competition, we think that they've effectively won the payments market in in the uh, developed world. So we doubt that there's going to be competition coming through, but it's always a possibility. Um, a prolonged economic downturn and decreasing consumer spending would would be bad for them. Um, but again, that that's sort of shorter term. Uh, and then the shorter term pressures that we're already seeing some from sort of cross uh, less cross border sales and cross currency transactions. Um, You'll see later, I've got the top holdings for clients on, on, on the end of the slideshow. Um, I don't own Visa for clients. It's it's less of a, a global business. It's more US centric. So that's why Master, I prefer MasterCard over Visa. MasterCard's got about 65% of its revenues outside of the US, whereas Visa uh, only has about 55%. So, so I, I just wanted to uh, include another company example that's a little bit different to sort of your bigger companies that, you, that we hold for clients um, like Alphabet and MasterCard and, and, and Apple that we touched on a little bit earlier. So this one's much smaller and it is actually a retailer. So that's uh, that's baby bunting, which you, you might have uh, come across. So it, it meets those investment criteria for us and, and we've held it for clients for some time. Um, it's, I like to refer to it as the Bunnings of, of baby goods. Uh, it, it's really emerged as a as a category killer. It's the dominant player in uh, in the baby goods sector in Australia, and then that sector's it's growing and, and it's been quite defensive, um, which which is really attractive to us. So it's got a market share of about fifteen percent. It's got um, its next closest competitor which is this point here has three stores now uh, baby bunting has 56 uh, several competitors have exited the market over the last two to three years so it's left them in a really attractive position to take advantage of that market share and and try and jump on onto that so you can see that 70 store closures from, from five different competitors over the last few years so it's attractive as well from from an online perspective uh, it's been very resilient. The share price has been volatile through COVID, but the, the fundamentals that we're looking at um, have been have been very resilient. Uh, so online sales were up 39% um, during uh, the during the last quarter to 30 June, uh, and they represent almost 15% of total sales. Um, physical store sales are growing as well, as I said, sort of defensive and, and also growing a little bit. Uh, so it's 7.6% in the second half of 2020 financial year 2020 uh so very strong balance sheet no debt they've got net cash of 13 million dollars um fi20 ebit growth of 24 percent and, and net profit after tax of uh, up 30 percent and positively there on the, on the store sort of rollout they each store for baby bunting takes about four to five years to mature and, and more than half are under five years old so they're still sort of in that phase of 
of, of growth, if you like, uh, and, and roll out. And the high margin private label products are about 35% of their total sales now. From a valuation perspective, <clears throat> FY21P of 20 times. So again, it's, it's not necessarily cheap, um, but we're happy to, oh, I'm happy to pay for, for that quality. So just, just a, a, a graph here of the, this is really what we like to see. You can see the earnings per share in the EBITDA slowly going up. This year here was when they had some major competitors, uh, Babies R Us exited the market. So you had similar to, uh, similar to Bunnings and Masters a few years ago, um, Bunnings struggled because Masters were just trying to get rid of all their stock. So same thing happened with baby bunting in this year. So that's why you get that downtick and it goes back up. But this is really what we like to see, this just general sort of uptick in, uh, in earnings and, and earnings per share. So clearly there's, clearly there's risks. Um, the key ones we think are Am online risks or pure online, if you like, say Amazon Catch, uh, which is owned by Wes Farmers now and, and, and eBay's. But management have, are very aware of that. So you can see there 76% of Baby Bunnings top selling products aren't on Amazon, 74 aren't available on Catch, and then they've got a strong branded store presence on, on eBay. Um, last two slides, I'm cautious of the time here. Um, so what are, what are we avoiding or what would we... What would we suggest avoiding at the moment? Uh, really, that anything that doesn't meet that investment criteria that I, that I went over there before, and, and and importantly, that that means sort of companies with with weak balance sheets. So if they've got high debt or poor ability to cover that the debt repayments, which is just referred to as interest cover, um, companies that aren't profitable or, or, or speculative companies, and companies with with sort of sky high valuations. That are, that are priced for perfection as well. Um, <clears throat> just some more general words of warning, I guess. So we'd be cautious of sort of short-termism as I refer to it. Um, it's, it's, it's really a marathon, not a sprint when it comes to investing. Uh, and then a conversation I've had with a few clients recently, there's a lot of information being bombarded at us each day. Um, just, just keep in mind that, that sort of financial media doesn't have your interests at heart, that they're, they're there to sell stories and get, get you to click on their page rather than, rather than providing sort of, uh, sort of quality advice. And then just, just to ensure that your port, oh, sorry, portfolio is appropriate for, for your risk tolerance uh, and the, the companies that you do own uh, meet those criteria and can weather sort of any, any storm. So this is, this is a list of the top holdings. So this is the top direct share holdings for, for my clients. Um, I'll, I'll leave this up for a little while so you can have a bit of a look at it. Uh, sitting above those at the moment, we're, we're reasonably cautious. Sitting above those is cash and term deposits. So cash is about 10% in term deposits, another, another sort of 15% or, or thereabouts. But again, that comes down to, to the sort of risk profile and asset allocation of our clients. And I will just touch on performance as well. So this is the aggregated portfolio performance for, for my clients um, over, over a five-year period. This isn't, this isn't weighted for portfolio size. It's just a, just a simple average. Um, and, and you can see there that it's, uh, it's, been, it, it's been quite good um, five years, which is we prefer to focus on these longer-term figures or I prefer to focus on these sort of longer-term figures you can see there that the, the performance at a bit over 8% has outperformed the Morningstar Balance and Growth Indexes. Underlying there, there's, there's clients that have sort of moderate to balance risk profiles to, to sort of quite assertive risk profiles. So there could be portfolios that are fully invested or portfolios that hold sort of up to 40 or 50% in cash and, and, and term deposits. Um, th those figures there are after fees. And then you would have heard it before, but just, just uh, the past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. So I guess just to, to summarise on that, the investment criteria that we apply, it has worked to date and, and we think it will continue to work. It's fairly simple, but, but we're not going to change our approach dramatically. That's, uh, that's really all from me, unless there's uh, any, any more specific questions. We don't have any questions right now, but if anyone would like to um, get, a, get any in before we finish up, please do so. Charles, whilst someone might be typing away on some Q&A there, I, I, thanks very much for your time tonight. I think it was great. I know my key take-homes were really we're in uncharted waters with regard to COVID and various other things going on in the market. Um, I really enjoy and like the investment criteria. I think it really simplifies the, the choices and how to make those choices. 
yeah. um, investments that long-term perspective. Yes, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And uh, definitely to pick those quality stocks rather than trying to pick the market, which um, maybe in the longer term isn't, isn't a positive outcome. And uh, mm. of course, where possible, uh, seek professional advice to really make sure that those um, hard-earned dollars that you're investing um, reap the rewards that you deserve. So, uh, that might keep the game. So, so um, uh, yeah, no. if, if anything to add there, Charles. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. We're um, definitely trying and seek professional advice if, if you can. But yeah, you, you, that's sort of the key takeaways I think they've been. Excellent. Well, we might sign off there. Um, again, this is recorded. You will also be um, directed. Uh, your feedback's really important to us. So if you can um, provide any feedback to tonight's webinar, we'd really appreciate it. So, um, so just quickly, sorry, before you before you go, you will, yeah. when you log out, you will um, be asked to complete a short survey. And as Ben said, it would be really great for you to um, to give us some, some feedback. So that would be really great. Um, thank you all for attending. Um, we did have someone ask how we get um, Charles's details. We will be sending around the video of today's session and we'll also include them, um, Charles's details, in that email. So stay tuned for that. And yes, a very big thank you again to, to Charles for your time. That was um, really great. Some good take-home information there. So thanks very much. Anna, thanks for having me and thanks for the opportunity. It's been, it's been great.